It is a delight, as has already been mentioned, both in prayer and in the announcements, for us to come together this evening. And that delight certainly is strongly reflected in the nature, of course, of our smiling faces and the opportunity to worship the God in heaven in the way that we feel and are certain He will find acceptable and pleasing. As we each are aware here at Pippin, of course, this calendar year we set before ourselves back really in December of last year the goal to, to read through the entirety of the Word of God. And at least at this point in time, as we have reached the second Sunday in the month of December of this year, we've now read some 1,129 chapters, closing in on the end of the entirety of the Bible. Currently, the New Testament reading in the book of Revelation, the Old Testament reading, not only in some of the minor prophets, but also in some of those other texts, at least in time, that relate also to those prophetical years. It is the case this evening, as you might have noted in the reading, we, of course, will turn our attention to some of the aspects of the Old Testament book of Zechariah. I realize that may not be the first book to which we turn in terms of reading. It might not be the immediate favorite that most typical Christians would select. But we can rest assured that it too is inspired and that those features and those truths contained in it are as needful and as useful, at least if you and I read with care, as they certainly could have been in days gone by. Those Old Testament prophetical books, they do have living messages not only that set before the people of that day, the truth and the clear Word of God, but by inspiration there are certainly great matters within it that can be very helpful to you and to me as well. Tonight's lesson is entitled, An Adamant Stone. And you may notice on that slide I thought that I would introduce the lesson in the following way. Those who are geologists and those who are mineralogists often make reference to a scale of hardness to assist them in their characterization of a certain rock or a mineral. Knowing how hard it is helps them know what's made of as well as comparing it to others such that they can ascertain better without destroying it. The Mohs scale of hardness. But isn't it interesting tonight in the lesson text that was read a moment ago, the God of heaven makes reference to a hard substance too, but it isn't a rock and it isn't a mineral. Hold on with me as we investigate that matter more thoroughly as the lesson proceeds. What is the substance to which God refers and describes it as being so hard that in fact the consequences are extremely deadly? As we study that matter tonight, why don't we begin the lesson as we often do by at least reflecting a bit on the times of Zechariah. That is to say, what about the setting of this book? What would have prompted God to send this message in the way that it did? But as we look at those matters, it will prepare us well for those slides that are to follow. In our study through this year, of course, we have already come to the point that God allowed the people to be taken into Babylonian captivity. Those 70 years of the exile had come and they had now gone. The decree of Cyrus had allowed them to return to Jerusalem if they wanted to. That was really the lesson last Lord's Day morning, wasn't it? We looked at Ezra chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 and recognized then that God allowed through His great providence to move Cyrus in a way to let the captives return if they wanted. But when they went back, they needed to recognize work would be required and they needed to be committed people. You and I notice as we come to Zechariah tonight, we appreciate very well that they have already returned and they began working on the temple. They laid its foundation as they laid that foundation. They stopped working. 
The time came that adversaries clouded their way and they frustrated their purpose and they stopped for 16 long years. It seems not a single thing was done. Now they built their own houses and they in fact did things for themselves but did not in any way make any movement toward completion of that temple. It is in that regard that God stirred up the people. And he did so by commissioning two prophets to come and to stir them up so that they would be motivated and moved to complete that temple. First came the prophet Haggai, a little two-chapter Old Testament prophetical book. Haggai came and he did in fact encourage them and stir them up. And amazingly enough, in 24 days they accomplished far more than they had in 16 previous years. Roughly two months later, another prophet came the prophet named Zechariah. And you and I tonight are going to look with some detail at his book, 14 chapters. And in this book of Zechariah, we find a man who had a very different style than Haggai. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, some of the features of Zechariah remind us of a number of other Old Testament prophets. Zechariah has a great number of apocalyptic sections in that book. That is, visions and things that remind us of books like Revelation and books like Ezekiel and books like Daniel. But there's also interspersed in all of that a powerful and direct message of repentance like what one would find in the book of Jeremiah. In fact, an ancient statement that seems to be used in characteristic ways of Zechariah is this, the spirit of Jeremiah rests on Zechariah. We find a lot of correspondence of the preaching of Zechariah when we recollect the preaching of Jeremiah. As you close that slide with me, we do find though that even with the completion of the temple, there was another problem lurking beneath the surface. This people needed to be constantly stirred up. They didn't need to again become slothful or lazy. They didn't need to again to forget where they came from and who they were supposed to be serving. And so they needed to be ever reminded that the condition of their heart needed to be directed always to God. And in so doing, that they ultimately could fulfill the purpose which God had in store for them. Speaking of that purpose, it takes us to the next slide. Because interestingly enough, we find in the book of Zechariah an amazing frequency of references to Jesus. Some of us are probably aware of the fact that Isaiah is called the Messianic prophet. And so indeed in those 66 chapters of Isaiah are so many references to Jesus, to the church, to the characteristic features of that which would be the great body of God on earth. But it might be of interesting feature to note that the prophet Zechariah, though it's a much shorter book, it has a larger density of prophecies of Jesus than even does Isaiah. In fact, I listed rather quickly some of the major ones, and I believe you each of us can be impressed as we look at the fine detail that appears so exquisitely in the book of Zechariah. First of all, you'll notice at the top, He is expressly, that is Jesus, called the branch. Zechariah 6 verse 12. And that immediately hearkens us back to the days of Jeremiah, who himself in Jeremiah 23 referred to Jesus as the branch, capital B, Capital R, capital A, capital N, capital C, capital H, the branch. The one out of whom the great production and the presentation of God, the branch that flows outward and produces the marvelous inspiration from heaven, 
It would be the branch that would come through this people. But not only the branch. You'll notice that he is exquisitely called the king. Behold, thy king cometh. The prophet Zechariah wrote in Zechariah chapter 9. You notice that the people had long since enjoyed kings like Saul and Solomon and David and others, but yet the prophet Zechariah looked down the stream of time over half a millennium and said, Thy king cometh. There was coming a greater king from that perspective someday. That king was, of course, Jesus, the great master. In the New Testament, we remember how often the Lord is recognized as King of kings and Lord of lords. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 15, Revelation 17, 14, Revelation 19, 16, all of them hearkening to us the thought of His kingship and the greatness of His reign. However, you'll notice what quickly follows. Even this interesting little detail is scattered amongst the book of Zechariah. It was expressly said that he would ride on the colt, the foal of an ass. You and I remember when Matthew chapter 21 opens and the Lord made His triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Indeed, He rode upon the, the colt, the foal of an ass, and did so exactly, of course, according to the very prophecy of the one who wrote that history before its time. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? As you look beyond that one, you'll notice... The betrayal price that Judas prayed for Jesus was also foretold in this book. It was to be 30 pieces of silver. And yet, as you and I recognize again, 500 or so years would pass. And then Judas made his arrangement with those chief priests and the others of the Judaistic nation. And it was exactly for 30 pieces of silver. As you and I can see from that reference in Zechariah 11, that was foretold long before the events happened. It might be wise for you and me at this point to at least comment. Many of the features, of course, that we see in these prophecies were outside the control of Jesus. He didn't make Judas arrange it for 30 pieces of silver. But Judas did exactly as history had foretold it would be. Beyond that, notice, we find an amazing prophecy in Zechariah 13. In fact, this is the one the Master Himself quoted that very night following the events in Gethsemane. Jesus had prayed so earnestly that night, Father, if it be Thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as Thou wilt. Matthew 26, verses 39 and following. In the events that followed that night, as our Savior Himself, of course, ultimately was arrested, He quoted from Zechariah 13, The shepherd will be smitten, and the sheep will be scattered. A reference to what the apostles were going to do that night. They all fled from Him and they ran away, fearing, of course, for their own well-being and health. Isn't it amazing that that was foretold in Zechariah 13? As you and I add to that list, we notice it was also Zechariah who said that he would be pierced and there would be others that would look upon him. A clear reference to the fact of his own crucifixion. Jesus would in fact not only be smitten in terms of the shepherd, He would also be crucified or pierced by way of nails, and Zechariah foretold it. You I remember, of course, that David had foretold it roughly 500 years before this, back in the Psalms, specifically Psalm 22. As you and I race toward the close of that slide, though, only two more quick ones. 
One of them is the fact that this very one who himself was pierced and this very one who himself was smitten was nonetheless the one that would be the bringer of salvation. I would call to your attention Zechariah 9 verse number 9. And yet in the New Testament isn't it still a beautiful statement to hear it state? Speaking of Christ, the nature of the fact that He is the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey Him. One final observation. And this one is one that for many it would seem could easily pass beneath the radar. You and I know well in the days of the Old Testament there was an interesting distinction. On the one hand there were the kings and they of course were themselves those that were of the lineage of David. On the other hand there were the priests. Now as you and I give thought to the priests, they were of course all to be of the tribe of Levi. David, of course, himself was of the tribe of Judah, and thus ne'er the twain could ever meet. There could never have been an Old Testament legitimate king who also could have been a priest under the Levitical system. It was an impossibility. And yet, Zechariah made a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 6 that this great one that was to serve as king would also serve as priest. He would be both king and priest. As you and I look down the stream of time past the days of Zechariah, we appreciate that again no Jew could ever have fulfilled that. And yet when we turn the page into the New Testament and we see with such ease the fact that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, but by the same token, Hebrews 8 verse 1 says, We have an high priest who has passed through the clouds into the heavens and he now reigns at the right hand of God on high. He is both king and priest simultaneously. Today he reigns over his church and he is the great high priest. That thought, of course, is so great and so amazing in many details. It might well be as you and I close that slide. It only whets our appetite for a revisitation to Zechariah 7. The scene and the events that are therein, of course, call to our attention not just the life and times of Zechariah, well, they give us an impression about the days of Zechariah and help us make application to our day as well. An adamant stone. I would ask you to notice the way that chapter 7 begins. It begins with a very fair question. There were two gentlemen who came and they asked a very good question. I would ask you to notice... And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah in the fourth day of the ninth month, even in Chislu. Now they had sent unto the house of God Sherezer and Regamelech and their men to pray before the Lord and to speak unto the priests which were in the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? There were two individuals that were sent to come before Zechariah and ask a question. You may notice as we just read that, that the question had to do with the fast. The people of God, it seems, at least while in captivity, were in the habit of keeping a fast during both the fifth and seventh months of the year. There is one interesting feature. God nowhere ever commanded that. Nowhere in the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy was there ever a commandment to keep a fast in either the fifth or the seventh months. You and I remember then that this was a decent question that they might have asked. Should we keep this fast? Should we in fact maintain our fidelity to it? 
in the verses that follow, God had a reply that I'm sure they found very interesting, maybe even problematic. I've tried to list some of the features of it. Rather than expressing answer in the way they might have expected, God in His reply brought before them the thoughts of the condition of their heart. They and this people, rather than giving service just in an outward way, said that the problem is much deeper than keeping a fast. You've got problems of the heart, He told them. You're overwhelmed with selfishness, heartlessness, coldness, and features characteristic of what should not be those who are my people. In so doing, a discussion that would carry through the remainder of chapter 7 and on into chapter 8 was brought before them, helping them to appreciate that the problems which needed solving and the problems which needed attention from the matters of God were far deeper than just an outward fast. I might ask you to begin to notice the following. This was read earlier, but at least now with that background before us, let's look again at what God had to say to them, characteristic of their problems. Beginning in verse 8 of Zechariah 7. And the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment, and show mercy and compassions every man to his brother, and oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. But they refused to hearken, and pulled away the shoulder, and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law, and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit in the form of prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. Therefore it has come to pass that as He cried, and they would not hear, so they cried. And I would not hear, saith the Lord of hosts." But I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them, that no man passed through nor returned, for they laid the pleasant land desolate. I've called to your attention on that slide a few of the features that we just read together. Look at some of the characteristics of these people. First of all, you'll notice in verse number 12, their heart is described in a very interesting turn of words. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone. I began the lesson tonight by making a reference to the Mohs scale of hardness. And if you're familiar with that scale, you might realize that diamond is number 10 on that scale. It's the hardest naturally occurring substance. That's why it's sometimes, for those that can afford it, used in certain kinds of saws and drill bits, it can saw through nearly anything. You'll notice here's something harder than diamond. In fact, some translations even replace that word adamant with diamond hard. Their hearts were so hard they were unwilling to hear the things that God said. They were unwilling to be moved by it. Their heart was past the point of tenderness they refused. And you'll notice in verse number 11 it says they refused to hearken. They pulled away the shoulder. It's almost as if they turned around and said, I don't want to hear it. They rebelled against God. And in so doing, that adamant stone would ultimately be their demise. You and I read it, of course, in verses 13 and following that God said, If they won't hear me, then I won't hear them. Though they cried to Him and though they voiced their petitions to Him, God said, I will not hear. 
And in so doing, of course, he said, I scattered them into the desolate places. Isn't it interesting to reflect a little bit on the nature of that as we see it further? It says they failed to exhibit mercy, verse number 9, or compassion. They really couldn't care less. It mattered not to them what others were or were not doing. The matters that God had instilled within them in terms of history and graciousness mattered not in the slightest, apparently. Furthermore, you'll notice that led them to evil imaginations and to oppressions. All it takes is a minor step away from the truth and suddenly the devil will encourage matters to where the next step is even easier and the one after that is easier still. Evil imaginations, the characteristics of oppression, they came to be a people bearing so little resemblance to the kind of people that God initially wanted from the days of bringing them out of Egypt. Finally, you'll notice they failed to execute true judgment. Oh, they had judges in the land, and they made their decisions, but they were based on things apart from truth. Other of the prophets will remind us some were based on bribes. Others were based on relationships, but not truth. The God that you and I know is a God that respects truth. His truth, the truth. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Our Lord taught in John 8, 32. And that truth highlighted in Deuteronomy 32, 4 is still the fact that God is a God of truth. The nature of that truth leads us to appreciate that application to us as individuals striving today to live beneath this sweet banner of Christianity. These characteristic problems of the Old Testament bring us to note, what about parallel circumstances of today? Can it still be an individual could be less than compassionate, heartless and cold, unmerciful and uncaring? Surely we recognize that our world seems so often to present that. But it would be our hope, of course, that no person striving to be of God would. Let us develop those thoughts like this. We notice that one of the problems mentioned here had to do with their failure in regard to both the expression of compassion and that of mercy as well. Didn't Paul write to the Galatians in Galatians 6 verse number 10, to do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Didn't Peter write concerning brotherly kindness in 2 Peter 1 verse number 6? Didn't our Savior Himself teach about the characteristic and the fact of that compassion that ought to be exhibited? Jesus Himself, you may recall, on an occasion when a large multitude was gathered about, the shades of evening were coming about them and they were hungry. They had been with Him, listening to Him preach. Jesus would not send them away lest they faint in the way, to borrow the language of Luke chapter 8 as well as Mark chapter 6. Jesus, of course, proceeded to feed the 5,000 on that occasion. Five loaves and two fish He used to distribute among them, and they all had plenty. But what prompted it was the compassion of our Master. Compassion... Do Christians today then serve in a position to which that degree of compassion or at least a desire to be compassionate does exist? Another passage to which I would turn your attention in 1 John 3. John on that occasion with such simplicity was able to write, 
But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and yet shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? That love of God that John referred to in that passage is a love manifested, of course, in a compassion for the well-being and for the welfare of those that, of course, are others. We at the Pippin congregation would be desirous, of course, of following in the footsteps of compassion and mercy in that way. You'll notice, though, that it does lead us to appreciate some other features, too. Look at what occurred next. You and I remember so sweetly that statement by Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. In the midst of that presentation of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Himself taught, Therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. Doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, that still is an exceedingly high ethic, isn't it? Many philosophers and other kinds of individuals along that category have often tried to lift high a banner of philosophy that would equal it. And yet Jesus with such simplicity stated that. What a grand rule of ethics and morality, simply doing unto others what you wish that they would do to you. That degree of kindness leads us to what occurs next. These people in Zechariah's day, in their coldness, their heartlessness, no caring for that which was the lot and the appreciation of others. God through Zechariah brought that to their attention and said, that ought not to be. What about the Christian? To your attention, I would call texts like Romans 14 as well as 1 Corinthians 8. Both of those passages remind us, among other things, about a circumstance that existed in the first century era a circumstance characteristic of the church. You might recall that it had to do with partaking or not of certain meats. Paul, of course, made the statement, and he affirmed the fact that an idol is nothing, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 and following. However, he said, out of concern, out of deference, out of a desire not to cause someone else to stumble... You do not act with such coldness, and you do not act with such heartlessness, but rather out of love and concern for Him, do not act in a way to cause Him to stumble. Paul would state it like this, Christ died for Him, don't cause Him to be destroyed because of your attempt to use your own selfish liberty. Maybe in light of that, we can again see how often that kind of appreciation finds itself in languages like Philippians 2 verse 3. To the Philippian congregation, again, totally different from Corinth, Paul admonished, look on the things of others and not on the things of yourself. Esteem, Romans 12 verse 3, the matters concerning others more so than yourself. One of the great teachings of Jesus, of course, still stands so opposed to what the world would wish us to think. Lift yourself up, the world says. And Jesus says, lift somebody else up. Those who, of course, abase themselves will be exalted by God, but those who exalt themselves will be abased by Him. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and following. It surely brings to our attention the fact then that judgment and true judgment ought to be a vital part of the desire and the well-being of those, not only of Zechariah's day, but our own as well. 
true judgment. I've asked you to notice some verses that bring us to notice an interesting Hebrew word that really falls into that same character, kindness. This text, interestingly enough, does speak rather voiceably to the subject of kindness. Apparently that was missing in the days of Zechariah. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. To borrow the words of Ephesians 4.32, Be ye kind one to another. That certainly is just the opposite of coldness and heartlessness, lack of compassion, mercy, and concern. Christians are admonished to exhibit a degree of sweet, sweet kindness. It is kindness that makes a man to be desired, isn't it? To borrow the language of Proverbs 19. That kindness brings to our mind another verse. Be kindly affectioned one to another, Romans 12, verse number 10. Does the spirit of kindness reign supreme in your heart and mine? A spirit that allows us to appreciate not only in thanksgiving what we have been able to enjoy, but with great gratitude to feel a desire to respond appropriately. The attitude, of course, exhibited here seems so different than in the days of Zechariah. Isn't it sweet to notice that Jesus as the great bringer and the great prince of peace set before us the perfect law in regard to all of this. The perfection seen like this leads us to notice the soreness of the warning given to them. What if they persisted with that adamant heart? After all, it was likened to an adamant stone. What if they persisted in that? Where would it lead them? We've already noticed verses 13 and 14 of Zechariah 7. It led to, of course, destruction. It led to such sadness that it led to being removed from the blessings that they previously could have enjoyed. What about a hard heart today? What if you and I are afflicted with it? What if you and I allow it to overwhelm and we do not use the great remedy of the great physician to fix it? Sometimes we sing a song, the great physician now is here. The sympathizing Jesus. He is the great physician. He has the words that allow a heart to be touched and to be made tender and to be softened in such a way it can respond appropriately. The Hebrew writer warns us not once, not even twice, but several times about harden not your hearts as in the provocation. It's a sad situation to have a heart that's hard and that's unwilling to be touched and unwilling to be responsive. The people in Zechariah's day are exhibit A of what could happen if that were to be the case. Oh, how they needed to change their ways, to repent of their deeds, and to make the proper response unto God so that they could be the very people through whom the great Christ child would one day come. Thanks be unto God, some of them did learn their lesson. Some of them did make appropriate changes, and sure enough, half a millennium later, Jesus was born through the people who were, in fact, the ones that were faithful. You'll notice as we come near the close of that slide, the people of Zechariah's day were in need of a renewal of their character. They had come back from captivity. After a period of stagnation, they had finally built the temple, but there was a greater problem lurking beneath the surface. That problem needed to be addressed, and that problem needed to be dealt with immediately. In Zechariah 7, the God of heaven spoke. True judgment, 
have compassion and mercy, have a heart that's not adamant, but rather one that has been replaced by a tender and sympathetic heart for the ways and the law of God. As we close this lesson this evening, we've noticed the days of Zechariah paint a rather vivid picture of some features that are reminding us in some ways of matters even in our own day. Might we close the lesson like this? The days of Zechariah, although those were so long ago from our perspective, somewhat now around 2,500 years ago, we notice that the issues, the characteristics of society seem so familiar because we often see it so frequently. May you and I have a heart that in the New Testament is not hard as diamond, not hard as flint, not hard as the other elements of the Mohs scale of hardness, but a heart that's been replaced by that tender and responsive one, ready to ever be obedient to the things of God. You see, when a heart becomes seared, as it was in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 3, it's a heart that's no longer responsive. It's a heart that's rebellious. You and I remember from the days of Ezekiel what kind of disaster that brings. Tonight, if your heart hasn't been as tender with regard to the things of God as it should be, why not at this very moment start making those changes? Allow the truth of God to infiltrate you. Allow it to fill your being in such a way that you allow your thinking, your actions, your speech, every aspect of your being to be molded into what God would have it to be. Your heart will not be adamant if that's the case, but rather it will be totally responsive to the truth which is the matters of God. Tonight, as we draw this lesson to its conclusion, as we each analyze ourselves, where do you and I stand in respect to a passage like this one? Have you clouded your own judgment or are you executing true judgment? Do you have a heart that's cold and heartless or is it one that is responsive? If we could be of help to you tonight, you realize that if you have never obeyed the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior, you at this point are distanced from God, though having reached a point in life of knowing right from wrong, but yet you've rejected it. Why do you remain in that condition? The Son of God came that you might be saved. He brought salvation. That was prophesied in Zechariah 9, verse 9. Tonight, the plan of salvation is so simple. You've heard the Word. Believe it. Believing Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have begun that walk with Him at some former time, but you've allowed matters to change, you're no longer responsive to the truth. Your heart is becoming harder, it seems, by the day. You need to make a change at once. Don't let it get any harder. Ask for the prayers of brethren. Desire our elders or someone else to study with you to help you. We'd be happy to do it. If tonight we could be of assistance as we pray for you, why not let us know the way we can do it and come at once while together we stand and while we sing.